Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 301. Today is October 30th, 2019. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, hey, S&P put in another all-time record high today. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about in this episode. I'm going to give you my idea of where we're headed through the end of the year. Before I get to all that, just a quick announcement. I want to remind you about the Wellsteading Meetup in Dallas-Fort Worth area. This is going to be on November 10th, 2019. We're going to meet at 2 o'clock at a place called the Tavern at Lakeside. You can Google it and find out the location. I did put the address in a blog post that I put out this week. So if you're not on the email list, you can go over and check that out under the observations and commentary part of the website. And that was dated, I believe, this past Monday. That's where I talked about S&P 500 hitting a record high and the emerging market still having room to run. Um, and so, hey, that's it for announcements. Let's get into what's going on in the markets. If you've been listening to the Wellsteading podcast all year, you're not surprised that we're hitting record highs. Despite all the negativity out there, I've continued to be optimistic and see potential for this marketplace for all the reasons that we've talked about over the past couple years. Yeah, there's plenty of things to be worried about, but the bottom line is that interest rates are low. And then along with that, there's plenty of liquidity in the marketplace. If you want a loan to buy a house or if you're a business and you need to make a loan to expand your business, the money is available and it's cheap. Same thing can be said for energy, whether it's natural gas or petroleum products or other types of fossil fuel like coal, or even if you're looking at alternative energies. Energy is plentiful and it's relatively inexpensive. In fact, it's quite cheap. So the fact that we have plenty of money to grease the skids of business and then the engines of business can be turned with inexpensive and available energy, well, that doesn't guarantee that we're going to get a strong economy, but it does provide tailwinds which support the economy. The two biggest problems that we've had over the past two years have been, number one, the Federal Reserve was in a tightening mode and they were raising interest rates. And number two, we have this trade war, trade negotiation, tariffs going on uh, with many countries, but specifically with China. Those two elements were the biggest drag on the stock market over the past two years. And of the two, I'm going to tell you, the Federal Reserve has been the most important one. And you can understand that by looking back just a year ago. It was October, I believe, 3rd, 2018. Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell came out and said that the Federal Reserve was a long way from neutral. This is after they had raised interest rates three times last year, and he was basically setting the market up to tell him he was going to raise it a fourth time in December of 2018. Well, the stock market didn't like that at all. Over the next six weeks or so, from when the high had been put in in September of 2018 up until Christmas Eve, the stock market fell some, I don't know, 18, 20%. It had very little to do with a slowdown in the economy or the trade war earnings recession, or the diminishing return on tax cuts. No, the primary reason the market crashed at the end of last year was because the Federal Reserve telegraphed to the market that they were going to continue raising interest rates. Well, here we are a year later, and what's happened? Have they raised interest rates? No. At the beginning of 2019, the Federal Reserve started to walk back their previous hawkish stance and so far, year to date, we've had three rate cuts. They just cut rates again today, 25 basis points. So last year, they raised rates four times. So far this year, 
they've cut rates three times. So they basically said that everything they did last year was wrong. And in addition to that, what they've been doing over the past 13 months or so has been instituting a quantitative tightening program. This is the opposite of quantitative easing or the unwinding of, of quantitative easing. Even though the Federal Reserve hadn't been putting new money into buying bonds like they had during the quantitative phases of 1, 2, and 3, QE3, I believe, ended in the fourth quarter of 2014. So for four years or so after that, they weren't putting new money into quantitative easing in terms of printing up money and buying bonds. But what they were doing was as those bonds would mature, they'd take that, that existing money and reinvest it back into bonds. That was keeping the balance sheet up at around $4.5 trillion. Well, they stopped that last year. They started letting those existing bonds mature, and when they did, they just let them roll off the balance sheet, meaning they didn't reinvest the money. That took liquidity out of the market. And when you factor in the fact that the Federal Reserve was raising interest rates and at the same time pulling money out of circulation, well, that's why Wall Street was so panicked. They were worried that the Federal Reserve was over-tightening and the fact that money would be more expensive and less available well, that would squelch growth and thus throw the economy into a recession. That's what all the worry was about. Over this past year, I haven't been worried about the Federal Reserve throwing the country into recession. It's not that I didn't think that they could. I mean, they definitely have the potential. And what I just described to you was exactly how they would have put the country into recession. But my argument was that the Federal Reserve would only continue to tighten as long as they felt that they could get away with it, meaning that they would not cause the economy to constrict. They were trying to tighten things up and to, quote, get interest rates back to the natural or the normal interest rate. And that's because things have been so out of whack for the last decade. But my theory on all this is that we're not going back to the way things used to be in the 1990s or the early 2000s. The new normal, the natural interest rate, the normal interest rate for the times we live in right now, is probably pretty close to where we are. Over recent weeks, the 10-year Treasury has come up. Right now, it's at about 1.8. I think that the natural rate for the 10-year Treasury, given the kind of environment that we're in and the economy that's likely to take place over the coming years, is probably going to be in that 2 to 4% interest rate. I've been arguing that for years now. And for right now, we're on the low end of that because the economy can't support a 10-year treasury at 4% would put 30-year rates at, I don't know, somewhere around 6%. And I don't think that the current economy, the housing market, is strong enough to support interest rates up at around 6%. And so if the Federal Reserve did raise rates up that high, that would roll over to the stock market and the bond market and the country would go into recession. So my argument all along has been the Federal Reserve will stop raising rates. And they did. They stopped in January, and since then, they've backed them off three times. And they're injecting more money into the economy with bond purchases. They're not calling it quantitative easing because they're not buying bonds on the uh, midterm or the long end of the, of the yield curve, but they're buying short-term, very low-duration bonds, pretty much things like money market bonds, and that's because last year when they were doing their quantitative tightening cycle, they tightened too much. They took $700 billion out of the bond market. Well, now they've committed to going back in and on the short end of interest rates, 
they're talking about buying at least $250 billion worth of bonds. They're putting much-needed liquidity back into the system to support the overnight lending rate. Now, you'll hear all kinds of chicken little crackpots talking about how the banking system is about to fall apart and the economy is going to crash and the dollar is going to lose its reserve status and the same old nonsense you hear time and time again. Well, with a click of a mouse button, they're injecting $250 billion back in. It's that simple. It's that easy. They overshot. They took too much out. They're just putting it back in. There's no conspiracy. It doesn't have anything to do with the United Nations or the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank or whatever crazy Illuminati theory you want to come up with. It's simple mathematics. The Federal Reserve got too ambitious in their plans to raise interest rates and take money off their balance sheet. They overreached, and now we're seeing them walk all that back. And as a result of that, what do you have? Well, you have the S&P 500 today putting in an all-time record high, and it put in a record high on Monday. And I don't think those record highs are done yet. In fact, the market had been down earlier in the day, but once the Federal Reserve came out and made their announcement, the market actually went up and closed up. To me, that's a very good sign. The other part that I find fascinating and interesting and also a silver lining to all this is that the Federal Reserve, specifically Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, in his comments, he wasn't overly dovish. In fact, what he really said was that the Federal Reserve is just going to kind of take a pause. He wasn't guaranteeing that we're going to get a rate cut in December. He just said that, hey, we're cutting rates three times. We're taking back three of the four that we put in last year. And right now we're going to pause and assess the data. Well, so many people have been betting on the fact that we're going to get at least one more rate cut in December and then one or two early next year. Well, so many people on Wall Street think that's going to happen. The fact that Chairman Powell didn't endorse that, that he said that we were most likely just going to stay steady for a while, the fact that he said that and yet the markets didn't sell off, they actually went up and closed at an all-time record high, well, again, to me, that's very encouraging. And then moving on to the next topic, the trade war, the tariffs, whether negotiations are on again, off again, whether it's phase one or whether there's going to be phase two or three. Listen, I'm not claiming that the end is over in the trade war and trade negotiations. And in fact, I don't think there is going to be an end. I think that just as we were in a cold war with the Soviet Union, we are currently in a cold war, a cold trade war with China, and it's not likely to easily get resolved anytime soon. And that's with or without Trump. The next president... And the one after that, whether they're Republican or Democrat, they will be dealing with these same trade issues. So I'm not looking at the trade war over-optimistically and through rose-colored glasses. Trump has brought that genie out of the bottle, and it's not going to go back in. And that has less to do with who's president or what party they're a member of, and it has a whole lot more to do with the maturity of not only the United States' economy, but also where we are as a global leader and how all that relates to our national security interests. That's something that we're definitely going to be talking about a lot as we get into 2020. But for now, suffice it to say that I don't think the trade war is going away, but I do think we're in somewhat of a detente, somewhat of a little bit of an easier negotiation. The Chinese economy is hurting because of the tariffs. Trump is running for re-election. He doesn't want to go into 2020 with an economy that's bogged down by the trade war. 
And so I think it is likely for us to see that the trade negotiations phase one will be enacted just enough to calm down the markets. Now, is that working? Well, look at where the stock market is. Again, S&P 500 put in two all-time record highs this week. In the blog post that I put out on Monday, I not only commented about the S&P 500, but I also showed a chart for emerging markets. As well as the S&P 500 has been doing over the last month, emerging markets on a relative basis have done even better. In fact, I think the number was that over the last four months, emerging markets have outperformed the S&P 500 by two and a half times. Again, that shows you the effect that this easing of the trade war is having. And I think that emerging markets have a lot longer to run. And I've been saying that not only all this year, I've been saying that for nearly 18 months now. I've been in emerging markets since December of 2016 and January of 2017. And every time there was a dip, I've been buying it. I've been a strong proponent of foreign stocks in emerging markets because they were so much undervalued. I'm a contrarian investor. I look for opportunities that other investors don't like. When I see a market that's making a reasonable profit and other people are discounting it, to me, that means that that stock or that market or that ETF, it's on sale. That's been my position now for, you know, 18 months or so on emerging markets. Now, I mentioned, you know, 18 months, two years, even though I've held these for about three years. Well, the first year was fantastic. In 2017, the emerging markets had an amazing run. They ran all the way up and did a multi-year peak in 2018, but then they fell apart. And although they've recovered recently, they're nowhere near those highs of 2018. Two weeks ago on my YouTube channel, I put out a video and it's worth watching. Go check it out. But I put up a chart there showing emerging markets and how they've underperformed the U.S. market over the last two years and how they've never gotten back to that January 2018 peak. Now, the numbers are a little different as of today because the emerging markets have gone up over the last two weeks. But when I made that video on that day for the emerging markets just to get back to where they were when they peaked in January of 2018, they would have to go up some 23%. I showed that on the chart, and then I further went in and said, you know, I just don't look at charts. I like to take a broad, holistic view of the market. So I look at charts, sure I do that, I look at trends, but then I also look at fundamentals. And in the case of emerging markets, I believe that the fundamentals are supporting what we're seeing in the charts. The valuation on emerging markets is somewhere around 13 times, that was two weeks ago. If they get up to a historical average of 16, now that's still far below where the United States markets are. U.S. markets are at some 18 times earnings. But if you assume that the valuation on emerging markets could get up to a 16 times earnings, which isn't extraordinary, you can back it up with historical data. And the fact that they're at about 13 now, well, that difference between a 16 multiple and a 13 multiple, it comes out almost exactly to the difference that we're seeing in the charts of where the emerging markets would have to go up to just to get back to where they were almost two years ago where I think is even a stronger case for a breakout in emerging markets is that over these past two years, emerging market performance has lagged the U.S. So the U.S. is up some 8 to 10% or more from where it was in January of 2018. 
So even when emerging markets get back to where they were, they're still going to be lagging the relative performance of the S&P 500 by, you know, 10%. Now that doesn't guarantee they're going to get that high, but I'm just trying to show you how far the rubber band has been pulled. And I think the emerging markets have the ability to snap back and make up at least a portion of their underperformance over these last two years. That's why I have been and remain a proponent in emerging markets. And for now, I'm planning on holding these. And unless something goes horribly wrong with the trade negotiations, I think those emerging markets are on track to go up 10, 15, 20, who knows, 30%. But again, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't predict the future. I'm telling you about my positions, what my thoughts are, and my rationale for it. I don't think it's a guarantee. I don't think that it's going to absolutely happen. But for my money, I think the probability is high enough that I remain invested in these positions, and that's why I've been buying the dips in these positions over these last two years. Oh, and incidentally, emerging markets are not just dependent on trade deals. Emerging markets are very sensitive to American interest rates. And so the fact that the Federal Reserve is lowering interest rates, the fact that the value of the U.S. dollar is likely to move down some more, and the fact that there's more liquidity in the United States, those are all things that will support emerging markets. And the reason for that is that the vast majority of emerging market debt outside of China, well, it's mostly denominated in U.S. dollars. And so the lower the cost to borrow U.S. dollars and the lower the cost to refinance and roll over debt and the more abundance and availability of U.S. dollars, well, that all fares well for emerging markets. So where do I think all this is headed? Well, I can speculate here, but I want to really, really emphasize, like I always say, I can't predict the future. And I know I sound like a broken record when I say that, but I, I do it to distinguish myself and put a difference between me and what you hear from other people in the media. Someone sent me an article today where the headline was, why the stock market will drop 18% before the end of the year. That was the headline. It wasn't that the you know, S&P 500 may drop 18% or is likely to drop 18% or that you know, there's a high degree of probability that the market will drop 18%, but it was definitive. The stock market will drop, right? It was, it was will. They just knew. And I picked that up as someone that was bearish, but you can see similar articles where someone's just going to say, it is going up. It'll, it'll be up 8%. No doubt in their mind. Well, listen, I have a lot of doubt. I've been trading for nearly 35 years. It's a very humbling experience. And what I've learned is the best way to make a trade is to not go into it with arrogance, not think that your models are infallible or that you can predict the future. In fact, I made a podcast episode one time. I don't remember when it was, but you can go over to wellsteading.com and put in the search engine there. You'll find it. It was titled something like the dumbest guy in the market because that's exactly the way I trade. When I go to make a trade, I know that if I'm buying something, somebody else is selling it. Or if I'm selling something, someone else is buying it. I don't go into that trade with the arrogant assumption that I'm the smart guy and I'm making the right decision. Before I make any trade, I think about the other guy's position. Why does he want to sell? Or why does he want to buy? What am I missing? I approach every trade, not like I'm the smartest guy in the market, but on the contrary, that I'm the dumbest guy in the market. 
Now, having that kind of an approach, it doesn't do really well if you're trying to market yourself as a genius, but that's never been my intent. I could care less about marketing. My intent, first and foremost, is to make money through trading. I do that with my own portfolio, and to the extent that I'm successful with that, I attract clients that then want me to invest their money. So I could care less about the marketing hype or the image. I just care about protecting my principal and investing in assets that are likely to grow in the future. So no, I can't predict the future. I have no idea where the stock market is headed at the end of the year, but I'm going to tell you what I think. I think that based on what we've seen and what I've just talked about in this podcast, availability of capital, low cost of money, overabundance of energy and relatively low cost of energy, the fact that we're getting a little bit of a detente and some moderation in the trade war, and also the fact that earnings are holding up quite well. In fact, we're right now about at the end of the announcement of third quarter earnings. Now remember, this was what all the negative Nellies in the media were telling you, the earnings recession and how profits were faltering and all the gloom and doom. And yet, what are we hearing today? Over 80% of companies that are reporting have beat earnings estimates. It's the same old story. Companies come out, they sandbag, they hold down expectations. That gets everybody nervous and scared. And then when it's time to report the numbers, they almost always beat. This quarter is no different than any other. And I don't see a degradation in corporate earnings going forward based on the data we have right now. And so cheap energy, cheap money, corporate earnings holding up, when you factor all that in, that means to me that there's a higher likelihood that the S&P 500 is going to go up and not going to go down. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to hit a road bump along the way, that some drama will come out of Washington, D.C., that Nancy Pelosi or Donald Trump or some whistleblower or Boris Johnson with Brexit or some other foreign leader. We have no idea what anybody could say which could throw the market into a tailspin. But just looking at fundamentals, we're pretty much even keel where I think we could hold out through the end of the year. And if you take a moderate look of where we think earnings are going to come into for 2019 and where the S&P is at today, that puts the price to earnings ratio at almost 18 and a half, a little less than that. Now, you may say that that's historically high, and it is historically high, but not if you factor in how low interest rates are. The long-term 16 times valuation on the S&P 500 has taken place over decades when the 10-year treasury was trading at about six and a quarter percent. Well, the 10-year treasury now isn't even trading at 2%. And when interest rates are incredibly low, that means that asset prices can be incredibly high. And so that's why we're at such a high valuation. It has nothing to do and no comparison to the irrational exuberance that we saw during the 2000 dot-com bubble. That's where you had a lot of money invested in and chasing internet companies and computer companies that were showing zero profitability. That's not where we are today. Well, we may be there in the IPO market, but if you're a Wellsteader, you know we don't invest in IPOs. So we don't care about Uber or Lyft or Beyond Meat or any of these other companies that have a great story but don't earn any profits. What I'm interested in as an investor is quality, blue chip, and in many cases, dividend paying stocks. 
most of them United States-based, some of them foreign-based. And if you look at that group, they're very profitable. And in an extremely low interest rate environment, me and other investors are willing to put a higher premium on them. The reason I bring this up is if you take today's valuation of the market and you apply where profits are likely to be in 2020, where, where we're likely to be a year from today, and you assume that over these next 12 months, the level of investor sentiment will be at least equal to what it is today. If you make that assumption, then that would put the S&P 500 well above 3,200 sometime over the next 12 months. In fact, it puts it real close to 3,235. So when people ask me where I think the market's going to be in the future, I think that it's very likely, not that it's a sure thing, not that it's guaranteed, but I think that if things stay the way they are now, it's very likely we could at least get to 3,200 on the S&P 500. Now, whether that happens this December or whether it happens later on in 2020, I have no idea. I don't know if it'll ever happen. But I think from a probability basis, based on the fundamentals of current investor sentiment valuations and where profitability is likely to be next year, I think that 3,200 plus is very, very likely for the S&P 500. And as I've already stated, I think that emerging markets, as long as we don't have further deterioration in the trade negotiation talks, well, I think emerging markets can go up even farther than that. You know, we're looking at 10, 15, maybe as much as 30% over the next 12 months. Now, there's a lot of wild cards and caveats with this. But if corporate profits hold up and we maintain a similar level of investor sentiment, then we could definitely see that 3,200 on the S&P 500. In fact, significantly higher than that. And a thought on investor sentiment. That's one main reason all this year I've been so bullish on the stock market. And it wasn't that investor sentiment was high. It was exactly the opposite of that. It was a contrarian position. Investor sentiment was so low all year. And when everybody else was worried, that made me optimistic. Just last week, we saw the American Association of Individual Investors, their, their investor sentiment survey. Just last week, we saw that starting to tick up. It's still slightly more bearish than bullish. But it did improve last week, and this is after it has been negative for so long. And the survey will come out tomorrow, so we'll have to see if they've gotten up into the bullish sentiment. But the fact of the matter is, even if they come up to the neutral level, that to me is still a contrarian indicator because markets don't get overheated until they get overheated. Right? You can't have in a market that's exhausted with overenthusiasm until you get the enthusiasm. And if individual investors are only slightly bullish, well, that means that there's still a long way to go to get to irrational exuberance. And that's one main reason why I think that it's very likely that with all the good things that have been happening so far, that we could definitely close out this year with the markets going higher and ending in a Santa Claus rally. One final closing note. For those of you that think I'm being too optimistic, and I could be, Listen, markets at all-time record highs, if you wanted to take some profits here, well, good for you. Go for it. You never lose money taking profits. Prices have run up over the last three weeks, and we could definitely get a pullback. So again, I'm not ruling out the fact that we could get a pullback. I just remain optimistic that I think things are going to go higher through the end of the year. And for those of you that doubt me, I would just say think back over the last two years, but especially over the last year. 
One term that you heard over and over and over again over the last 12 months was the inverted yield curve. The inverted yield curve was going to throw the economy into recession. It was proclaimed as the number one indicator for predicting a recession. And so all we heard was that we were headed to a recession. And this occurred even before we had an inverted yield curve. They kept anticipating that we were going to get an inverted yield curve. And then we got to the point where the two-year yield on the Treasury, that inverted over the 10-year. And again, all we saw was headlines, inverted yield curve, inverted yield curve, recession, recession, recession. Well, you know what? Everybody seems to have forgotten about the inverted yield curve. Why is that? Because the yield curve is no longer inverted. I dismissed the fears about the inverted yield curve last year for those reasons that I talked about where I didn't believe that the Federal Reserve wanted to drive us into a recession. So they made a policy change. They changed the direction of interest rates, and voila, there's no more inverted yield curve. But all those people that were chicken little proclaiming gloom and doom and economic and financial crisis because of the inverted yield curve, what do you hear them saying now? Do you hear them say that they were wrong? Or do you even hear them acknowledging the fact that there is no inverted yield curve to, to be afraid of? No, they're on to some other boogeyman. You know, they were worried about an earnings recession, but now that earnings are holding up, well, they're not talking about that anymore either. Oh, now they're worried about a declining GDP or a decrease in consumer confidence. What you have to understand is there are some people that make a living being negative, and they are always going to be negative. And so that's why you, as an investor, you have to ignore that noise and static, and you need to focus on the technical and the fundamentals of where the market is. Look at the data and ignore the nonsense. Well, hey, there you have it. That's my thoughts. Am I right or wrong? Come on back for future episodes of the Wellsteading Podcast to find out. Until then, as always, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best returns.